in here that we're going to get to pull out um, as far as application, and it's a good uh, lesson. We're going to be referencing back to a couple other um, passages within 1 Samuel as well. Before we get started, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that, that we have another opportunity to praise you, to open up your word and, and see how you would uh, speak to us today. Just thank you for the, the message this morning, and I pray that you would allow me to speak clearly and that there'd be uh, glory given to you this afternoon. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So again, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, the last two chapters have introduced us to both the person and the character of Saul. Uh, we learned a lot about him. We learned that physically, he looked really great. He looked the part, um, relating it to more of a presidential candidate, if you were to see him on TV, you would say that person looks very presidential. Um, Saul looked the part, and we also learned a little bit about his character and that he was very much about himself. He was very vain. Um, any way that he could be magnified, that's what he sought to do. We also know that one reason um, people were calling for a king was so that they would be able to unite the nation and face their enemies. We look back at the history of Israel and we know that Israel has had a lot of enemies. Even to this very day, we know that Israel has a lot of enemies. Um, the United States of America has pretty much been the only friend Israel has had for a long time. Um, and even now, relations, uh, depending on the way that you look at it, might be going more sour. Um, but it's just an incredible thing that these people are saying that they wanted a king so that they could be united, and then they could fight off their enemies better. Um, it's as if God as their king wasn't a good enough general, or God wasn't strong enough to fight their enemies, so they needed a person to do it. Forgetting their history, forgetting all the times that God, through the prayer of his people, would conquer enemies, um, even just within this generation as well. Just an incredible thing to me and some great irony. Uh, when I was studying this and looking back at 1 Samuel as a whole, um, that was a thought that just kept popping up in my head, that these people rejected God as their king and were saying that he wasn't good enough to unite them and to fight off the enemies. Uh, just something incredible to me that God wouldn't be strong enough. Um, so let's get into chapter 11 here, opening up verses 1 through 3. It says, Then Nahash the Amnite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will I make a covenant with you. So they're beginning to open negotiations, and here's the terms. That I may thrust out all your right eyes and lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. And the elders of Jabesh said unto him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers unto the coast of Israel. And then, if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. So just a couple uh, details. Nahash actually means serpent. Um, kind of an interesting detail, and we're going to see this. Um, that We're kind of seeing this challenge or this test being offered. Um, the Ammonites, very much against Israel. Again, there's a long history of um, being enemies with Israel between these two groups. And Nahash, this individual, very strong leader, his name meaning serpent. We're kind of seeing parallels back to Genesis chapter 3 of an enemy of God coming and offering a test to God's people. And we're going to continue to see uh, this as it goes on. And I love it that these, I can kind of see these negotiations playing out pretty, pretty laid back. And it's, okay, what, what do we need to do for us to have a covenant with you? How can we do this peacefully? And he simply responds with, well, I'm going to need your right eye. Everybody's right eye, not just yours. We're going to pluck it out and we're going to use it as a reproach. So 
the response is a little different than mine. Mine would have been much stronger, uh, but they simply ask for a, a week to decide. Hey, can we have a week to figure this out and see if we can have some time, uh, talk to our elders, talk to the leaders, and see if we can kind of delay a little bit so that we can find help. And if no one is going to offer us help to fight you, yeah, then you can have our right eye, then you can help us. Um, two ways of looking at it. One, if you're the Israelites, you're saying, this guy wants our eye. Any other option is going to be better. Um, but again, this man, is, his army is surrounding them. They're very much encamped about them. And he offers to, to, instead of coming in and killing all the Israelites, simply is offering a negotiation, which is a good move on his part because, one, he gets to keep his army at the current strength. But, two, he can do this, and then if he changes his mind and decides to kill the people, he's fighting against a bunch of one-eyed soldiers. Uh, the handicap there is, is great, right? So either way, he's coming out on top of this. But we're starting to see it. The, the fact that Israel didn't respond immediately against him is showing that they're, they're looking again to human authority. They're already looking for a king. They're struggling with that. And then this individual offers them something, and they're even in, enticing the idea. They're looking at the possibility as opposed to saying, no thanks, God is on our side, we're going to be okay. They're continuing to reject God as their king, continuing to reject him as the authority. So we're seeing a test offered to them, and we're seeing a negotiation. Uh, move down verses 4 through 6. Then came the messengers of Gibeah of Saul and told the tidings in the ears of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field, and Saul said, What aileth the people that they weep? And they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings, and his anger was greatly kindled. So the messengers return to the city, and they begin to tell various people. They come in and they're telling the people, and this causes them to weep. There's sadness. Obviously, anytime you're told, we're either going to die or we're going to lose our right eye, happiness isn't really encouraged there. So these people are they're weeping, and they're, they're distraught, and they're crying out. And Saul hears this from the field. He comes out and says, what is wrong with these people? What is the problem? And he receives the message, and he becomes very, very angry. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and his anger was kindled greatly. I found it interesting that the messengers um, didn't return this message to Saul from the beginning, nor to Samuel, who they had kind of looked to as a um, replacement king for some time. Uh, the same person who, in previous chapters, we saw offer a prayer up to God, and God slaughtered a whole army. How quickly did they forget Samuel's role? How quickly did they forget that they were just told of Saul's anointing as king, that Saul had been chosen to be king, but yet instead they return with the message and they just kind of tell each other, kind of passing it through the grapevine of, hey, did you hear what's going on? We're either going to die or we're going to lose our right eyes. So, kind of sad. They're not telling their leaders. They're still adjusting. We can kind of see them adjusting to this new form of government still. You would assume that Saul would be first informed, if not Samuel as well. They forgot that Samuel's prayer to the Lord delivered them from victory at the hands of their enemies just recently. And now we're going to continue to see how Saul responds. Again, he's just been told that he's going to be king. Last chapter, we saw him hiding, trying to avoid any responsibility. He was reluctant to take this up. And now we're going to see him in basically his first act in the role of king. 
uh, verses 7 through 8, And he took a yoke of oxen and hewed them in pieces and sent them throughout all the coasts of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out with one consent. And when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. So Saul uses a, an incredible tactic called fear and motivation. He decides to, to cut up um, these, these oxen to putting them in pieces and send them out to the people and say, hey, if you don't join me, this will happen to your oxen as well, which motivates 330,000 men to come and join up under his army. And again, there's a few ways you can look at this. You can say, wow, that's great strategy by Saul. He's a great leader. People wanted to follow him. Um, but we also see that he's trying to motivate them through fear. And again, kind of leaving them no choice, right? Either join the army, join with me and Samuel, or your livelihood will be taken away from you. Not much of a choice. You're going to take the chance and sign up. Um, but it kind of brought me back to chapter 8 where we saw once again, and we'll probably reference this every chapter here on out, of um, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 11 through 12. Samuel's warning where he said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself. So he will enlist your sons in his army for his chariots and to be his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties, and will set them to ear his ground to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. We're seeing this being played out basically on his first day in office of, all right, I've been told I'm going to be king. Well, now I'm going to either take away all of your livelihood or you're going to fight for me. Basically drafting them, essentially, into his army. And 300,000 men, that is quite an army. So these people were clamoring for a king. They begged for a king because they wanted to be unified. And we're starting to see this take place. For better or for worse, the armies and the people of Israel are being united through Saul may not have been in the way that they had hoped, but again, they're actually coming together to fight this enemy. Verses 9 and 10. It says, And they said unto the messengers that came, Thus shall ye say unto the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by that time the sun be hot, ye shall have help. And the messengers came and showed it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out unto you, and ye shall do with us all that seemeth good unto you. So they come up with a plan. Jabesh uh, receives this message that they're going to get help at midday the next morning. So around uh, mid-morning tomorrow, they're going to receive help, and they are excited. These people are happy, as you would assume that you would be, when being told you're going to be killed or lose your eyes and a whole army is coming to help you. They're rejoicing in this. And notice in verse 10, what they do is they're going and they're telling the Ammonites, they're telling Nahash, that they're going to be surrendering on the next day, giving him a sense of false hope. They know that 330,000 men are going to be fighting for them on this day, and instead they tell, they tell their enemy, all right, we pretty much couldn't get any help. We're going to offer ourselves to you the next day, and you can do whatever seems good to you. They're saying that they're going to offer themselves up. Um, just kind of a little bit of good strategy there, some good fortune by waiting for the week. So we're starting to see how this is going to work out in Saul's favor. Uh, move down to verse 11. It says, And it was so on the morrow 
that Saul put the, three, put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the host in the morning watch and slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came to pass that they which remained were scattered, so that two of them were not left together. We're able to see this, this the strategy of Saul, this great military general, and we're going to continue to see um, how excellent he was with military strategy, what a great general and leader he was. But we see that he splits up these troops into three parts and attacked at night, uh, very similar to what he had heard of Gideon doing back in Judges chapter 7, of having three companies, um, splitting it up and attacking while they were at night, um, somewhere between like 2 a.m. and 6 in the morning. So when I'm sleepiest, that's when they're attacking. That point where you hit your deep sleep, they were probably drinking, celebrating that they're going to be conquering a new land. Um, so he goes in with his three, three groups, and he, he slews all the Ammonites, and as it says at the end of verse 11, that they were scattered so that two of them were not left together. Um, just a great picture of a great victory. Um, lots, of, lots of deaths, a great victory, and then scattered. So we see that Saul's first act as a, would be as a great military success. Pretty much one of his first days in office is coming in and slewing the Ammonites, someone with a great history against Israel, leading an army of 330,000 men over this great enemy. And let's see how he responds. Again, a person who is very vain, who's very uh, focused on himself, and who has all the success in the world, it's going to be interesting to see how he responds in this case. You would assume that he's going to respond and say, yes, I am wonderful, I am your king, bow down and worship me. You would expect a response of pride. But here's where we're going to see verses 12 and 13. It says, And the people said unto Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put to death. Again, we're seeing Saul is being lifted up so much. People are so happy with him that this pro-Saul party rises up and says, Hey, who are the people that were against Saul? We need to find them and have them killed. Anyone who speaks out against him, anyone who didn't want him to be king, we need to have them killed. Incredibly strong response by these people rising up. And Saul in verse 13 says, There shall not a man be put to death this day, for today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. Incredible and surprising response on the part of Saul based on the character that we've learned of him up to this point. We see that Saul has a chance to come out and say, yeah, I am a great general. If you continue to stay with me, I'm going to be leading us through all of these victories. Don't worry. Um, I've pretty much been waiting my whole life for this. But instead, he gives glory to God and organizes a day of thanks for this victory. Saul is aware that God is the one who brought the victory, not his great strategy, not this great army that he was able to scare into coming and fighting for him, but giving glory to God, saying that today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. An incredible example, an incredible testimony on Saul's part, um, one of the things that we can commend him for in demonstrating true leadership which isn't taking credit for yourself, but giving it to God, showing as an example how to glorify God. Verses 14 and 15 at the close. It says, Then said Samuel to the people, Come, and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they, sacrifice, they offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel 
rejoiced greatly. So we see that Saul is confirmed and accepted as the new king of Israel. It's not just an anointing, it's not an inauguration or he is soon to be. He is now actually confirmed as king of Israel. And at this point, he already has a great military victory leading them out of the hands of enemies. So in the eyes of these people, they are thrilled that Saul is their king. They are going to be proud of themselves for begging Samuel for a king. And they're saying, man, this is what we've needed all along. We just needed a king to lead us into this victory. Forgetting the whole time that even Saul himself is offering the victory to God, saying, hey, God's the one that did this. He's the one that led us out of the hands of the enemy. So up to this point, we see him being anointed. We see him being presented to the people. Even just in the last chapter, in chapter 10, there were people that didn't want Saul to be king. Verse 17 through 27, we see um, him being shown to the people, and some of the people were very much happy. They liked the way that he looked, and they said, yeah, that's the guy. There was also a large group that said, he's not right. We know him. Why, why is he doing all these things? That's not right. But at this point, he shifted his favor from 50-50 to everybody in full support of him simply through this one victory. And it would lead these people to wonder, is this going to be the beginning of new leadership in Israel? Is this going to be a turn where instead of always being attacked and having to worry about how to defend ourselves, we're going to be on the offensive, we're going to be um, lifted up, we're going to be in great shape? You can see how that kind of thinking would creep in, that they're finally able to recognize Saul as their king, and they're excited about the future. Forgetting, once again, what 1 Samuel chapter 8 says, this warning that Samuel gives them. Hey, he's going to make your sons pretty much his own personal soldiers. He's going to take your daughters and your wives, and they're going to be cooks. He's going to take some of your land. He's going to take everything that you own. Pretty much nothing of yours will remain yours when you get this king. But at this point, again, everything seems good. They're really thrilled with themselves. They're excited to have a king. But always keeping in mind, and uh, we should always keep in mind that this warning that Samuel gives them, as we continue throughout these next chapters, always remembering that Samuel gave them the warning that while Saul may be working out in the short term, they still rejected God as their king and chose to have a human authority rather than God. And from what we know of Scripture, that doesn't tend to last long um, in the positive, positive side. Um, and as far as application for me, it was, it was exciting to kind of see that. And again, um, we kind of talked about it, and Ken in his psalm talked about um, when, when we're going through pain and we're going through things, it's kind of hard to see what God's trying to teach us at the time. But when we get out of it, we realize what it is that God is showing us. And they have been going through this pain, and all they wanted was a king. They rejected God as their king and wanted this person. And for a little bit, their sin and their rejection is going to look good. It's going to feel good to them because things are going to go well. But at the end of the day, they're trusting in a human authority, and Saul is going to let them down. And they're going to once again cry out to God, repenting to him and asking him for forgiveness. Um, it was just a good, good reminder for me that to keeping in light of everything of God, I know, understand that this may be hard in the moment, but big picture, you're in control, and this is going to work out for your glory and for your good. Um, and just continuing to have that as a reminder. Uh, let's pray. God, we thank you for this, this time that we have. We thank you that, that we're able to see you once again, um, being true to your word, that we're able to see that you were the king uh, that they so desperately wanted and that they should have um, been asking for and that they trusted in human authority. And God, that serves as a great reminder for us, especially around this election season, that we wouldn't put our faith and our hope and our trust in a certain candidate or a certain 
party or anything else that's a human authority, but that we would look to you, seeing you as sovereign over all things, seeing you as the one who's in control. God, I just pray that you would allow us to be, to be encouraged through your word, that we would see that you once again are fulfilling a promise. You are always in control. And thank you that in this instance, Saul is able to glorify you for his victory, um, that he didn't take credit for himself. And God, I just pray that, that through our success, that we would be able to give you the credit, give you the honor, and give you all the glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you all for coming, and you are dismissed. If some of the younger students...